0: Good morning, everyone. How you doing? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament, to Psalm ninety. Uh, there's a verse I want to share with you there, Psalm ninety. Um, as you all know, as they've mentioned, we're in a series right now, uh, and it's more than just a teaching series. It's an overall church initiative called All In, in which we're exploring the idea of living life in such a such a generous and sacrificial way that we together increase our spiritual impact on the world around us, locally, regionally and globally, and uh, if uh, that's, a, all, that's all new to you, you can go online and go to our website, and you can read all about it, what the initiatives are, and all those things, and how you can be part of it. But as I was thinking more and more about it over the last few weeks, I've come to realize that this whole, this whole idea of being all in essentially begs two fundamental questions of humanity, right? Why are we here, and what are, what are we doing with the time that we have? Now, as Christians, you know we believe that, that God created the universe and everything in it, including us, and that through faith in Jesus, God graciously offers us a life everlasting and calls us to make a spiritual difference in our world right here right now. But given the hectic nature of our 21st century existence, uh, most of us tend to operate, I think, on, on cruise control, just kind of blowing through our days, uh, rarely taking time any time at all to consider what we're actually doing in and with this thing called life. And so one of my goals uh, for our All In series has been to try and encourage personal reflection, you know, reflection on on how we're living, reflection on what we're we're doing with what we have. Uh, Because reflection has a way of interrupting the status quo. It has a way of propelling us beyond the superficial just so you know, life reflection isn't a new thing. In fact, it's exactly what Moses was doing when he wrote this, this Psalm 90, Psalm meaning song, it's a song of Moses. Uh, as he contemplated the frailty of, of human nature compared to the infinite nature of God, uh, in Psalm 90 verse 12, Moses prays this, he says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Or another way to put that is, Lord, help us recognize the brevity of life, so we may live well, so we may live wisely. As I mentioned last week, over the course of uh, our all-in series, which is I said, this is week seven, uh, a number of close friends of mine have been diagnosed with life-threatening illnesses, and I've officiated the funerals of two others. And all of that has served to remind me of just how, un, how uncertain life is with, with no guarantees of how long we have on this earth. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the video says, what if this was your last day? I'll be more generous. What if, what if you and I um, had only a few weeks left to live? To say to the end of the year, this would be our last Christmas. What would that mean for you and for me? I mean, granted, it's a, it's, it's a morbid hypothetical question, but it is founded on the fact that life is brief. It goes by fast. In Scripture, Moses, uh, David, Solomon, Paul, James, they all write about how our days are limited. Uh, David, for example, says in Psalm 39, he says, Lord, let me know how fleeting my life is. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. James writes to Christians in the church, and he says, he says you guys don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Gone. It could be 40 years. It could be 10 months. It could be one week. But our days are slipping by faster and faster than we think. I just recently saw uh, an old picture of our wedding day, my wife and I. And I can tell you, based on that picture alone, that the days are going by quickly. Things have radically changed. Uh, My wife looks as lovely now as she did the first day. Me, not so much. In fact, uh, I got up this morning, Margie and I are in the kitchen uh, making some coffee, and I I gave her a hug. Good morning. She says, happy anniversary. (laughs) Uh, Time is fleeting, my friends. (laughs) Completely forgot about it. Not the greatest way to start the morning. But um, fortunately, my wife is low-maintenance, so not a big deal. But um, time is passing a lot faster than we think. And here's here's the deal. We can deny it. We can be paralyzed by it. We can get depressed over it. Or we can allow the reality to bring more clarity to our experience. Allow it to inspire us, you know, to live well, to live wisely, to live more fully. And really, God has created us for that very kind of thing, that kind of living. Jesus said, he said, I have come that they, and he was speaking about his followers, so he was speaking about you. He said, I have come that they, that you may have life and have it to the full. A rich, satisfying, passionate, purposeful life. I mean, isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we're all searching for? Isn't that what we're all hoping for? It is. And I I, I think it's safe to say that if it were true, if it were true that we only had a few weeks to live, just to the end of the year, most of us here would probably make some different choices in our lives. Which makes a lot of sense, because Moses implies in Psalm 90 that numbering our days, recognizing the brevity of life, leads to what? He said it leads to wisdom. And just so we're clear on this, wisdom isn't, isn't just about information. It's not just about knowledge. It's about the practical application of what we know. And specifically, the biblical concept of wisdom refers to skillful, spiritual living. It's the ability to discern and actively follow God's design for us as human beings and for for us as his people, to lead good, honest, healthy, helpful, compassionate, generous lives. Lives pleasing before God, lives respected by others, lives that make a difference. And while most of us agree that's the kind of life we want, uh, the truth is, when it comes to making wise decisions, we all struggle. I mean, every day, every week, every month, uh, we're faced with a myriad of decisions. Right, big ones, small ones, and uh, and the first thing we want to know when considering something is this: you know, okay, what I'm thinking about doing here is it right or is it wrong? You know, has God given clear direction on this? And in some cases, He has, and so the issue is is very clear. It's very black and white. It's a no brainer. Scripture speaks directly to it. And so the question of right versus wrong is helpful. But understand this, and you guys know this, a lot of life is lived in the gray, man. A lot of life is in the gray where that question of right and wrong doesn't, doesn't really work because things aren't so clear. And as a result, sometimes we assume because something isn't clearly wrong, that it must be okay. But I suggest that's a precarious assumption and a poor, a poor way to make decisions. You see, when when the question of right and wrong doesn't really work, doesn't apply, the follow-up question then should be this, is it wise? In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes to the church, he says to Christians, he says, "You, you guys might say, hey, I have the right to do this, that, and the other thing. And he said, it might be true, everything may be permissible. But Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. And not everything is constructive. And living wisely requires we understand that. So when facing a decision... Uh, in which the question of right versus wrong really isn't in play, then in light of, in light of uh, past experience, uh, present circumstances, future hopes, in light of advice I'm getting from mature, experienced men and women who I, I value and respect, uh, I always ask myself, okay, is this thing I'm considering wise? Is it helpful? And if not, I don't do it. If it is, then I take action. Because wisdom isn't measured simply by what you know or what you think, but also by what you do. You guys tracking with that so far? Take Moses, for example. He wrote this song, Psalm 90. When You guys know, most of you know the story of Moses, right? When the Israelites were held captive in Egypt, they were held under the, the tyranny of Pharaoh uh, for many years. God, God calls Moses to go to the, to the Israelites and then go to uh, command Pharaoh to let his people go, to release them, to free them, right? So Moses does that. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, what? He said, no way, man, that's not happening. And, uh, and, and so Egypt gets struck with ten plagues, the first of which was the Nile River turning to blood. When that happens, it's interesting, Pharaoh just turns and walks away like no big deal. Seven days later, God tells Moses, okay, have Aaron stretch his hands over the Nile and make frogs come up onto the land. And that's what he did, and that's what happened. There was this infestation of amphibians, slimy frogs everywhere on the plasma TVs, in the refrigerator, you know, all over the place. It's really gross to think about. And uh, when it happens, um, when it happens, Pharaoh calls for Moses, and he says, okay, enough already, enough, enough. This is nasty, this is gross. He says, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and from my people, and I'll let your people go. Basically, Pharaoh realized that the wisest thing for him to do was to obey God, release the Israelites, and get rid of the frogs. But what's fascinating in the story, and if you remember it, when, when Moses asks him, he says, okay, when do you want me to pray? Remember what Pharaoh said, how he responded? He, he responds with one word. He says, tomorrow. I could just imagine Moses was like, what are you, out of your mind, man? This is crazy. Look around the frogs. When are you, it's nasty. We need to get rid of the frogs. When are you going to humble yourself before God Almighty and Pharaoh says, "Tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow." In other words, he puts off the work associated with his decision for another day. Now, here's here's the thing: Whenever we read that story, hear that account, I I think we all prefer to see ourselves more in line with Moses. Yeah, you know. But what if, in reality, at least in some instances, we have a lot more in common with Pharaoh than we care to admit? Because here's a guy who had the the opportunity to listen and obey God, to help himself, his family, his friends, his entire nation avoid unnecessary problems and pain. He recognized what was wise to do, but he put it off. He says, I'll do it tomorrow. How often are we guilty of that same kind of foolishness? In instances when we know what is right or we know what is wise to do, but we put off doing it. We say, well, not, not right now. Here's the downside to that. Uh, As as the well-known Christian reformer and theologian Martin Luther once said, how soon not now becomes never. And he's right. The longer we put something off, the more dramatically we increase the likelihood of never doing it at all. And it, it took Pharaoh ten devastating plagues, the suffering of his people and the death of his firstborn, before he took wise action. How long will it take us? You know, how much nonsense will we endure before doing what we know needs to be done in our lives? Look, Pharaoh's experience represents a common pitfall. He confused uh, good and wise intentions with action, purposeful action. And at times we do the same thing, right? I mean, we do. We want want to make good, wise decisions before God and, and before others, and we want to live well. But if we're not careful, a lifetime will slip by in which we know what we should do, but we just fail to do it. We never take purposeful action. As some of you may know, uh, if you like sports, it is state playoff football season for high schools. And um, I was on the sidelines uh, yesterday, as I usually am, and it was very cold. And I was thinking, you know, Should I really be standing here on the sidelines in this freezing cold? And the answer was yes, because I love football. And I love it for a lot of reasons. I love it because it's a very strategic and complicated game. There are different offensive and defensive schemes. There are different, a lot of different positions. There are a lot of different plays and formations and audibles. There are special teams that do special things at certain points in games. There needs to be a lot of scouting and, and evaluation of opponents before you play them. Uh, it takes a lot of coordination between players and coach, coaches, even in the context of the game itself, for a team to be successful. So there's a lot to it. Well, I was thinking about it yesterday. Imagine, imagine a team that hires a new head football coach who comes in and, and with great, these great intentions. He talks to the media you know, about coming to the, the school and says, you know, we've got a lot of great athletes. We know, we know what we want to do offensively and defensively. We know what it takes to, we know what it takes to do, win a championship, and that's our goal. I mean, he says all the right things. It sounds all well and good. But what if when the official season opens... That coach never shows up for meetings or practices, never leads, never coaches, never teaches, never directs, never encourages. He just shows up on Saturday on game day. How do you think that's going to work out? Not very well. We have a, we have a, a, a number of high school and college football coaches here at Parkview, and I can tell you this. You find one on a Sunday morning, you ask them, and they will tell you that good intentions, not backed by purposeful action, won't win championships. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in football. It doesn't work that way in life. Good intentions are just that. They're intentions. And we usually have them. We usually have good ones for the most part. I think so. You know, we we, we have good intentions in terms of our education and our careers. We have good intentions for our relationships, our families, our our children, our finances. And One one, uh, area in particular we have good intentions in has to do with faith, our walk with God. As Christians, we have a lot, of, a lot of good, wise intentions. We intend to grow and mature as followers of Jesus. We intend to study the Scriptures. We intend to pray more, to involve ourselves in ministry, to serve God, to serve others. We intend on being part of a spiritual community in which we pour ourselves into others, and they pour into us. We intend on busting out of our of our comfort zones and doing one of those trips to, to India or Guatemala or wherever else it is. We have good intentions in terms of our generosity Because we understand God's call for us to take risks and to give sacrificially to the mission that he has called the church to. And how often do we say, you know, I intend on doing all of those things, but I'll just do it tomorrow. Well-known pastor and author John Ortberg years ago wrote a book called When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. And in the book he asked a rather probing question. He says, Do your commitments, he's talking to Christians here really, he says, do your commitments match your convictions? Do your commitments match your convictions? Serious question. Orberg goes on to say, he says, you know, we all hold convictions about what matters most in our lives, but when we take stock of our day-to-day actions, there's often a gap between what we value and the way we spend our time, energy, and money. Regret prevention means taking an honest look at what is shaping our lives. Tell me, I mean, what what is it about, what is it exactly about the idea of having just a a few short weeks to live that's so intriguing that to a certain degree it grabs our attention, it tweaks our imagination, our emotions? What is it about it? You know, to a certain degree, really, it produces magical thinking is what it really does. I mean, Magical thinking in the sense that we, that we, we feel, hey, if, if we really knew we only had to the end of 2013 to live, that we would suddenly, suddenly we would become, you know, the student, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the fiance, the spouse, the parent, the child, the friend, the business person, the leader, the, the Christ follower that we really want to be. You know, somehow we'd hit, we'd hit this switch and, and suddenly we would, you know, we would say the things we always wanted to say and we would do the things we always wanted to do and we'd give in the way that we always thought we should give. We'd go all in as we've been talking about the last few weeks and all of that. But let me tell you something, I've been around some people who knew they didn't have long to live and for some of them it didn't change a thing. Uh, Fast Company magazine. I don't know how, how many of you are familiar with it. It's um it's kind of a business magazine, but it's also about innovation and media technology, leadership, social issues, a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, not too long ago, it published an article in one of its uh, issues on um, uh, entitled "Change or Die." And uh, it's interesting. the The article talks about research that's been done that shows that when faced with a life or death situation, like changing your eating habits or your exercise habits. or or else dying of heart disease, etc., research shows odds are 9 to 1 that a person will make significant changes. 9 to 1. The article goes on to talk about how 80% of healthcare costs today is is spent on problems most of us can do something about, but never do. One author talks about change function, uh, uses this formula, change equals function, uh, to represent how people usually only change habits when the pain of their current situation exceeds their perceived pain of change. In other words, if they think staying the same is going to be more painful than change, they they might just make a change. But there's no guarantee. I don't know about you. I find this kind of research fascinating, but here's the bottom line. When we talk about the brevity of life, when we imagine having just over, what is it, four weeks left in the year, four and a half weeks, or five weeks, uh, so five weeks left to live, our, not, our, not, our natural rea- reaction to that is to say, well, if, of course if I knew that was true, I would make changes. I would make those changes. But research says that's not necessarily true. You're kind of kidding yourself on that. Because understand, what often gets played out in our lives is the as-now-so-then principle. In other words, when it comes to human behavior, the, a vast majority of the time, if we don't make changes right now, today, it isn't likely we'll ever make them. As things are now, so they will be then. And you can, you can see this is is what often happens when, with good intentions, we say things like, you know, I am gonna, I am gonna, I'm gonna work at being a better student. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read more. I'm gonna study hard. I'm gonna take notes. I'm gonna review those notes. But right now, I need to take a nap. I'll, you know, I'll do it tomorrow. Uh, or uh, I'm going to work, uh, I'm, I'm going to spend more time with my family because I've been gone a lot, I've been busy, but uh, I'm going I'm I'm to be with the family more. I'll start next week, though, because there's a huge project at work right now. Or here's mine, you know, I'm going I'm to exercise more, I'm going to eat better, I'm going to eat right. And I'm going to start tomorrow morning because right now I'm going to slam down this chimichanga, you know, and wash it back with a quart of guacamole and a Diet Coke. You know, that's what I need to do right now. Or, with good, wise, honest intentions, we in the church say, I know God has graciously gone all in for me, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in, loving, giving, sacrificing, rescuing, indwelling, empowering me for life, calling me to mission and so I'm, I'm going to go all in for him, and I'm going. All in obeying, all in serving, all in with my giving. I'm going to make a, a financial commitment toward the church having a greater spiritual impact on our world. I'm going to do it. I'm going to all in. I'll just make that commitment tomorrow. I'll get on that tomorrow. Understand, when it comes to faith, matters of faith, tomorrow is a concept unfamiliar in Scripture. For example, with Moses with his experience in mind, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says, "Today, today if you hear his God's voice, do not harden your heart. Do not say tomorrow, act wisely now." The apostle Paul writes to Christians in the church. He says, "As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation." Here's my Reiki translation of that. Forget about tomorrow, man. What about now? What about today? If you know what is right, if you know what is wise to do, do it. Don't foolishly confuse good intentions with purposeful action. Other writers outside the biblical text agree with that. Bernard of Clairvaux was an early 12th century monk. He wrote, hell is full of good intentions. Uh, William Shakespeare put it this way, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and all our yesterdays are lighted, have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Listen, when it comes to faith, when it comes to our relationship with God, in our 21st century American culture, it's, 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 it's pretty common for people to say, you know what, when it comes to God, I'll worry about that later. I'll worry about my relationship with God and what he's all about. I'll, I'll take care of that down the line. In fact, sometimes when, when you try and talk to people about faith, they get frustrated, they get angry with you, and they say, hey man, stop trying to force your, your beliefs on me. Don't do that. Stop trying to control what I do or try to make me feel guilty or manipulate me into, into behaving a certain way. People say that. Well, hopefully none of you are <clears throat> thinking those things. But just in case you are, here's the deal. I have absolutely no interest in forcing Christianity on anybody. I have, I have no interest in imposing guilt, uh, manipulating emotions, or controlling behaviors. All I want to do, all I am compelled to do, all I am responsible to do, is to tell you and to tell others about the grace of God in Jesus and explain the impact of that grace, how, how it impacts our life, how it changes us. It transforms us from the inside out. I mean, I want all of us to understand that biblical Christianity is about releasing guilt, releasing it, not infusing it. Uh, Christianity is not intended to be an exclusive club of perfect people, but an inclusive community of broken, humble men and women. And while all other religions say you have to earn God's love and acceptance, Christianity alone says, no, you don't have to earn anything. You just receive it. You just receive it. Because Jesus didn't come to establish some kind of ritualistic, works oriented religion. He came to offer a relationship with our Creator, one of love, one of grace, one of forgiveness, one that is absolutely transformational. Why? Because God's love and grace changes things, it changes us. This week, uh, when I was thinking about the whole football analogy, Especially yesterday, standing on the sidelines, I remember looking in the stands. I remembered this book that came out, uh, I think it was last year, a year before, uh, entitled Not a Fan by uh, Pastor Kyle Eidelman. And in a nutshell, Eidelman poses the question of the book Are you a fan of Jesus or a follower? And um, that's what the book is ultimately about. It's an interesting question because Jesus has always had a a lot of fans. I mean, during his ministry, thousands of people would come out to see him and hear him. Uh, Even today, Jesus remains quite popular, really. He has a lot of fans, even staunch atheists, acknowledge the profound wisdom of his words and the impact of his life. Uh, Most everyone considers him a good man, uh, a great moral teacher who changed the course of human history. And so Jesus has a pretty significant fan base even today. But the question of this book, and it's a good one, is this. Are you a fan or are you a follower? And to answer the question, you've got to figure out what is a fan. And as I see it, as I saw it yesterday, a fan is an enthusiastic but static spectator. Whereas a follower is someone who's on the move. Uh, you know, who has taken purposeful action. And it seems to me there are a lot of churches around our nation today filled with enthusiastic Jesus fans, you know, true admirers, men, women, students who, who want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close whereby it requires any involvement, any responsibility, uh, or personal commitment or sacrifice. Jesus said there's a problem with that, though. Because he said a day will come when he'll say to the fans who stand before him, away from me, I never really knew you. We never had a a true committed relationship with each other. And what that tells me is that it is very possible to spend a, a lifetime as a fan of Jesus. You know, someone who has a lot of good intentions, good thoughts, good feelings about him, but has never taken purposeful action to establish a relationship with him. And become a true committed follower and live as one. Where are you on that? A fan or a follower? It's a significant question. Understand, at its very core, this all in deal we've been talking about is, is really about life. I mean, it really is. It's a reminder to us that, as Moses puts it, our days are numbered, man. They are. Our time on earth is short. And so it's a call for us to be intentional about how we live and what we do with what we have. It's an invitation to savor every single day as a gift from God and to respond to this God who loves us unconditionally, who in Christ has poured out his grace upon us, and who calls each of us to engage in this mission of, of spiritually impacting our world and to do it now. Because I, I like what... Uh, author and thinker, C.S. Lewis, what he said one time, he said, look, there are far, far better things ahead of us than anything we leave behind. And that's true. And so all in is about living fully right now, leaving no regrets. It's about committing to do what we know is right and what we know is wise. And here's my encouragement to you. Don't confuse good intentions with purposeful actions. Don't say, I know what is right I know what's wise to do. I'll just do it tomorrow. No, no, no. That is that is a foolish mistake because you and I we don't know what'll happen tomorrow. We have no idea. Today is the time for action. Now is the time of God's favor. And now is the time for Jesus' followers to go all in for the one who's gone all in for us. I hope you will join me in that. Let's pray. Father, I am the first to admit that uh, I tend to blow through my days without giving much thought to what's actually happening around me, and then suddenly, before I know it, uh, the day is gone, the week is gone, the month is gone, the year has gone by. And uh, part of that is a cultural reality, the way we live our lives with such hectic um, schedules, keeping ourselves so busy, so entertained, that we don't take the time to stop and really think about what is happening with us, what is happening to us when it comes to life. But your word calls us to reflection and to recognize that our days are numbered, that life is short, like a mist. one one second, gone on the next. And you've encouraged us to make the most of the opportunities that we have, to be the kind of people you call us to be. <coughs> to be those who who care about the poor and who who rescue the captive, who um, reach out to the sick, who um, bring the truth of grace to the lost, the news of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who aren't just about good intentions, that we wouldn't be people who just are about putting off today and saying, we'll do it tomorrow. But in, instead, we would be people of purposeful action today. We're not just fans, Lord. I pray that we would be true followers, committed to you and to the mission you've given us. And that our worship wouldn't just be about empty words, empty lyrics of tunes, but our lives would, would demonstrate true commitment and how we serve, how we love, and how we give. For you are a good God who loves us with an everlasting love, and who in Jesus has given us everything. And so we worship you today. Receive our commitment. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we? So uh, here, here's the thing. You know, As a church, we're not just about standing around, talking, talking about changing the world, impacting the world. We don't have just a lot of good intentions. We want to actually do something. That's what All In is about. That's why we're asking everyone who considers Parkview home, if you're a believer in Jesus, to come all in with us, 100% participation. And, uh, and it's not too late to do that. You can fill out a, a commitment card today and drop it in a box, or, or during the week, you can fill it out online. It's a two-year commitment for our church to make a serious, serious spiritual difference in our world locally, regionally, and globally. And uh, that's what we're anticipating doing. So I want you to be part of it, okay? Don't say Tomorrow. Don't say next week, next month. Now's the time. Today is the day of God's favor. Uh, Also, hey, have a great week. at Thanksgiving this uh, Thursday. For those of you who helped us plan our 27th annual free community dinner, I appreciate it. We've got turkeys cooking. I was drooling all week. I actually went down one day. Just at the right time, they were pulling turkeys out, and I got to pull some of the scrapes out of the bottom of the pans. (laughs) I just want to serve, folks. I just want to serve. That's what I'm saying. So, uh, But a lot of you have made that possible by donating turkeys. Some of you are going to be here donating time to make those who have no place to go or no resources by which the, to uh, uh, celebrate the holiday to feel at home, and it's a good thing. So thank you for that. And then the only other thing I just want to mention, look, if you're here and this whole thing about Christianity is still new to you, or maybe you, you come from a background where it was all about guilt and it was about, you know, fear and all those things, understand Jesus wasn't about that. It's all about God's grace, And all you do is, you don't earn anything. You receive it. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And when you do, when you understand that, and you accept Christ and you choose to be a follower of his, it changes you from the inside out. And you begin to live life differently. See things differently. And uh, if uh, you're, you're here this morning, you have questions about that, or maybe, maybe as Thanksgiving rolls around, you're just really struggling with some things in life and family that happens around the holidays. We have some of our prayer team members are going to be up front following the service. They're here for you, pray with you and, and whatever you need, okay? Let me, uh, let me pray, and then we're dismissed. Now, Father, I pray that as your church leaves this building once again, as we go back out into our world, will we go with a great sense of purpose. May we go as true followers, not just fans, but true committed followers. May the way that we live, may the way that we serve, may the way that we give reflect that. Commitment to you and to the mission you've given us as a church. And now may your hand of grace and peace rest on your people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week.